If you're with me today, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. Grab your Bible, grab your device, and you can meet me there. So we are continuing on through our series, Apocalypse Now. Uh, so we took a break last week. We just paused a little bit to talk about just where we found ourselves in our culture in this moment. But now we are back in, and we'll continue to work our way through it. And so we are excited to jump back into that with you guys. Um, so it's not Christmas time, obviously. We are actually heading into the nicer weather. But uh, we are actually, it's the 25th today, so we are about a third of the way back until Christmas again. There you go, Ryan Epp. We are just eight months away from Christmas Day, and I have said to people, when I was a kid, Christmas was a great time, and I hope when you were a kid, you had something of that, and, and sadly, not everybody does, but there is something about Christmas time as a child where there is a magic to it, and it's exciting, and so when you're a kid, you have that feeling around it, and then you get older, and it maybe loses some of that sparkle, and then if you get to have kids again, then you get to capture some of that back, and that part's really fun, is that for kids, there is this wonderful uh, wonderful excitement and anticipation around Christmas time, and it's exciting. And as much as we would love to think a lot of that is hopefully family and, of course, Jesus and everything, uh, we also know a lot of it's just the presents, right? The kids are just into the presents and excited about the presents. And uh, and that's okay to be excited even as a grown-up about some presents. I find as I've gotten older when it comes to gifts, a lot of times it's Sarah and I will talk about what are we going to get and what does that look like. So there's not a lot of surprise to it, but a surprise gift is still exciting. There's an anticipation Participation to it. I remember in the first lockdown, uh, John and Marissa, who were leading worship this morning, uh, texted me saying, hey, we got to drop something off at your house, but we need you to be home for it. Um, and I said, yeah, we're home, so come on over. And it was just like, oh, wow, what's coming? What's happening? What's, this is exciting. And what they dropped off was just this basket, and that was in a time when everything was shut down. And they said, uh, you know, you can't go out for a date right now. We just wanted to give you and Sarah a date night at home. So there was this basket, and there was meat in it, and some really nice bread, and just this, all these goodies that were in there so my wife and I could have a date night at home. And let me tell you, I was as excited about that as any gift you ever could have given. Me. It was such a cool thing to get. And especially just when we were locked down, you couldn't get out much. Uh, it was just such an amazing way to lift my spirits. And there was such a, uh, yeah, just in the time between we got the text and the time between when they showed up, uh, they needed to make sure we were home because there was meat there. So they didn't want to leave meat <laughs> on the doorstep for 11 hours if we weren't going to be home for some reason. But between that time, it was so exciting and opening it just felt like opening a present. So there's this anticipation of the mystery of a gift that is important. And we see a little bit of that in heaven, actually, as we jump into our text today. So we're in Revelation chapter 5. We have uh, previously, of course, been in Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, John is actually invited into the throne room of heaven. Uh, he is actually invited before the throne of God. He gets to see a glimpse of what is going on around God's throne. And so in Revelation chapter 4, he has seen the one who sits on the throne, God the Father sitting there. He has seen the four living creatures who day and night never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's seen 24 elders around the throne with crowns who are bowing down before the throne and casting down their crowns in worship. And so that is where we pick up the story moving Moving into Revelation 5. So starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept 
because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Whew. You could just stop right there. That's a worship service, man. Like that's. That's what's going on around the throne. That is the, the reaction of creatures that are face-to-face -face with the living God. And so we got the, the beginning of this picture in Revelation chapter 4, which we did a couple of weeks ago. So we've met the one who sits on the throne. We've met the four living creatures who are the seraphim, who are kind of the worship leaders of heaven. We've met the 24 elders with their crowns on the thrones around the throne. And we have spent some time digging into that. And now we're meeting the lamb. We have met the father sitting on the throne, and now we are meeting the lamb. So verse 1 to 3. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So God the Father has this document in his hand. Uh, we don't do scrolls in our day and age, but in that time, that was the main way you did things. You wrote things in a scroll. And so God the Father is holding this in his hand. Somehow it is made clear. It's not made explicit in these verses, but it is somehow clear to us nonetheless that this thing is significant. Whatever is in here is important. And yet, even with the importance of it, there is nobody around who is able to open it up. And so for anyone who was reading this in the first century, they would look at the idea of a, of a scroll with seals, and they would say, that sounds an awful lot like a legal document. That is something that is very, very important. And so you would write your will, or you would write a contract, you would agree to things, both parties would sign it, you'd roll up the scroll, and you would seal it, and you would seal it to to make sure that nobody would tamper with it. And so we don't do scrolls anymore. We don't do sealed envelopes anymore. But sealed envelopes were around for a long time. And it was the same idea, is that you would put something important in there. If I needed to get an important letter to Jeff and uh, I needed to make sure it was not 
tampered with, then I would write it and I would put my seal on it. And when Jeff got the letter, he would know no one's opened this letter. Nobody has tampered with it. That's Chris's seal. So I know that it's safe. I know that it's trustworthy. And so for anyone in the first century reading this, they would say, oh, God the Father is holding a legal document of some kind. He's holding a contract. It has been speculated that perhaps it's almost like he's holding a will, uh, which it doesn't say, but it's interesting if it's true, just in the sense of someone has to die in order for a will to be opened, and the lamb has certainly done that. But this thing is here. God is holding it. No one is able to open it. Seven seals. We've talked about the number seven already during Revelation, uh, seven being the biblical number of perfection or completion. There is something about this scroll that is perfect, and there's something about this scroll that even John knows. This needs to be opened. There is something about God's plan, God's will, that's wrapped up in this scroll that needs to happen. And so verse 4, John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So John knows there's something significant in here. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows that there is something about God's plan wrapped up in this. And he weeps because it appears for a moment like no one is going to be able to open it. But then one of the elders, one of the 24 around the throne said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we just heard no one is worthy. No angel in heaven is worthy. No one on the earth is worthy. There is no creature in creation who is worthy. But there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And he's given the name here, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So the lion of Judah comes to us all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 49. This is the end of the Genesis account. And uh, Jacob is on his deathbed. And Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. Jacob has 12 sons who are going to be the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as Jacob comes to the end of his life, he blesses them. And not all of them get nice encouraging words. Uh, some of them get some words actually of cursing, but there are prophetic words coming. And this is the prophecy that comes to Judah. Genesis 49, 9 and 10. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So that's a prophetic word, man. Like that's, if you're Judah, like not every son got a really great blessing from their dad. Judah gets this promise, you are a lion's cub. There is strength in you. There is power in you. You are fearsome in a certain way. Uh, no one dares to rouse him. This idea of like, you don't mess with Judah. Judah is strong and powerful. And that would be something that defines the tribe of Judah for Israel. That would define this bloodline. They were strong and they were powerful. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That would also come to pass. The kingly line of Judah, who would rule in Jerusalem, would all be grounded in this same family, in this same tribe. King David and everybody else connected on either side of him, that was where Israel's kings came from. The kingly line was in Judah. So even like centuries before we ever encounter King David or anybody, uh, God knows obviously the destiny he has for Judah. Judah, your family line will be the ones that rule. They are going to be the ones who rule from Jerusalem. And so there is this kingly promise that you will be the rulers there that is given to Judah. But not just that. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So we just moved into a prophecy about the Messiah. 
We've gone from, here's a blessing for you, Judah, as a man. This is who you are, and you're strong and powerful, and this is going to define your tribe, your family. And then there's a prophecy about Israel, really, that there's going to be kings in this line, and they will rule and out of Judah. And then it moves into this word about the Messiah. One is going to come who really is the one who deserves that scepter, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. That there is not just going to be a ruler of Israel in Judah's line. It was going to be a ruler of the nations was going to come. And so when this revelation from heaven comes in our text today, Revelation 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is where it's coming from. Judah was a lion's cub. The promise was small back then. Jesus is the grown-up fulfillment of this prophetic word. He is the fullness of this promise. The lion of Judah has come. The prophecy has come to pass. God's word is always faithful. The prophecy is fulfilled. And lions in scripture, just as in real life, always represent power. They always represent uh, just there's something fearsome about them. When C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia series, he chose a lion to represent Aslan, the Jesus figure. And it's because lions are kind of scary and they are powerful and there's a a good fear that comes from around lions. In the Narnia series, they talk about Aslan the lion, and they say, is he safe? Like, is he tame? And the answer is, no, of course he's not tame. He's a lion. He's not safe, but he is good. And that is true of our lion as well. He is fully God. And so in the the word of the Lord being fulfilled here, the lion of Judah has triumphed. The one that God knew about way back when has finally come to pass and done everything that God said he would do. The lion of Judah, he's also called the root of David here. And there is ties into it in a bunch of different scriptures. We don't have time to get into all of it today. But just the idea that Jesus is both a son of David in terms of he was born into David's kingly line, and in that sense, he's given the name Son of David because David was an ancestor of his in his humanness. But far beyond that, he is also the root of David. He is the God of David. He is the source of David. David ultimately comes from Jesus. Not that Jesus was born because of David, but Jesus is also the root, the source, the the God, the creator of David. And Jesus would talk about this a little bit in Matthew's gospel, that he is both the the son of David and the Lord. And and just the, the tension of that, that Jesus in his humanity is a son of David, a descendant of David, but Jesus as God is the Lord of David. He is the God of David. He is the root of David. And so these two grand titles come forward. David was the king that Israel admired the most. David was the one that they looked to. David was far from perfect, but he was the one who was called the one after God's own heart. And much of the Psalms were written through him by the Holy Spirit. And so there there is just a, a reverence that Israel holds for David, that he is a king to admire. This is a godly man who pursued God. Even in his sinfulness, he pursued God and he, he ran after God his whole life and he worshiped God and he He sought to follow God. And so David is revered as this king. And so the lion of Judah, this powerful lion, the lion who roars, the lion who triumphs, the root of David, the one who was greater than even King David himself, the one who has come to earth as the lion, as the root, as God, as Lord, he has triumphed. And he is the one who can open the scroll And it's like, all right, let's get a look at this lion. Let's get a look at this root of David. Let's get a look at what this all-powerful God, lion, man, worthy one looks like. And verse 6 says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, 
standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And that's like a plot twist, right? What does this all-powerful lion look like? Looks like a dead lamb. Looks like a dead lamb. And how did this powerful lion triumph? By being a dead lamb. And so there's this picture of incredible power. And then there's this picture of incredible humility. Like there's nothing more powerless than a baby anything, right? A lamb is a baby sheep. There's nothing more powerless than any baby. And and a lamb, a sheep is not a powerful animal. And so... John, you know, preparing, all right, who is this worthy one? What does this lion look like? The lion looks like a lamb. How did the lion of Judah triumph? By dying like a lamb. And so there is this picture that comes out of Exodus 12. The the connection is obviously uh, the Passover lamb. And in the Old Testament, as the plagues were coming upon Egypt, the final plague was about to come. And Israel was told, you're going to celebrate this meal called Passover. You're going to eat a lamb and you're going to take its blood and you're going to put it on the uh, the door frames. And that blood will mark you as mine. That blood will spare you from the plague. It'll say, you are my people. You belong to me. The plague will not fall on you. And so the picture that scripture gives us is that's what Jesus is for us. What that lamb was for the Jewish people back then and the tradition that they would carry on and celebrate year after year, that's Jesus for us. His blood marks us as God's people. His blood spares us from the plague, from the death to come. Jesus is the Passover lamb who was slain. And so seven horns, horns in scripture usually, usually represent authority, that he is all-powerful. The seven eyes, John tells us, represent the Holy Spirit spirit. So there's the father, the one who sits on the throne. The lamb is at the center of the throne. The lamb has these eyes that represent the Holy Spirit. Father, son, and spirit are all here together on this throne, somehow in the mystery of the Trinity, distinct from one another, and yet also somehow one and the same, all on the throne together. And so when Jesus comes, he doesn't come the way you would expect a lion to come. Right? Jesus doesn't come seeking power. Jesus doesn't come seeking political influence. Jesus doesn't come leading an army. Jesus doesn't come in the worldly way of power. Jesus comes actually in the exact opposite, the most humble way, the poorest way, the most unlikely way. And as Jesus goes to the cross, it's the most unlikely way that God could save humanity. Right? Why didn't he just wave his hand? Why didn't he just bring an army? Why didn't he just come powerfully? If Jesus had gone and marched into Rome like everyone expected the Messiah to do and said, I'm going to just take over and then everyone's going to see me as king, like that would have been a lot easier in a lot of ways. But it doesn't solve the problem of our sin. And so when God creates humanity, God creates Adam and Eve, they're going to rule with me. In creation, I'll be God, but they're going to rule over creation with me. When he blesses them, that's the blessing. Go be fruitful and multiply and rule. Have dominion. Have dominion over everything that you see. God is still God, but we were created to rule and reign, and we were created to do that out of our communion, out of our relationship with him. And then as Satan comes and tempts, it's not ultimately Satan's fault. Satan comes and tempts. And there is something evil in us that says we like that. We're going to go our own way. We're going to choose our own path. We don't need a God. We can be our own God. That is the heart of all sin. We don't need any help. We will do this on our own. We'll do what's best for us in our eyes. 
And so that happens, man falls, and it would appear that God's plan doesn't work out, right? God created humanity to rule and reign with him. Humanity is not capable of doing that. Humanity is, has evil in it. It's just not capable of doing that. But God doesn't say, all right, well, that didn't work, so what can you do? God says, all right, I created man to rule and reign, and if man was the problem, I will take a man and he will be the solution to the problem, and he will undo everything that the first man did. And Jesus, of course, much more than a man, but where man was the sin problem, God makes Jesus the man, the sin solution. And Jesus lives that perfect life that God always had intended for humanity, and he lives that communion with God that God had intended from the beginning, and he lives this perfected life of living out perfectly in communion with God, in perfect obedience to God, doing everything God wants him to do, and then even lays down his life in obedience, even goes that that far, even does that. And so through a man, sin comes into the world, but through Jesus, the God-man, it all begins to turn around and get redeemed. And the powerful one becomes completely powerless. The lion becomes the lamb. The all-powerful one lays that power aside and embraces humility, embraces sorrow, embraces brokenness, embraces the cross, embraces vulnerability, embraces powerlessness, does not come at all the way the world would expect him to. And so when Jesus, the lamb, in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. They have just fallen down before God the Father on the throne in chapter 4. Now they fall down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so that's where the cultural idea comes from, that in heaven we're all going to be on a cloud playing a harp. It comes from this verse that these elders are here. They all have harps. But it just tells us there is music going on in heaven. There is a reason that we do music here on earth. It's not just to pass the time on a Sunday morning that we have musical worship time on a Sunday morning. It's because there is musical worship going on in heaven. Because scripture says in a few different places that God sings, that God himself is musical. And so we are made in his image. Humanity is also musical. In any culture of any time in the world, you will find music. Doesn't matter when or where, every culture of every time has had some sense of music, and that's because we are made in the image of a musical God, no matter what tribe or tongue or culture or time we come from. And there is music going on in heaven, so we said this a couple weeks ago. I know musical worship isn't everybody's favorite part of the service, but it's a good chance to practice if you don't like it, because we're doing it for eternity. There's going to be music in heaven. And not all of it will be singing necessarily. Some of it may be spoken. Some of it may be musical. But there will be music in heaven. And so we think it's important to engage in that music now. Then there's this other beautiful picture here that uh, the 24 elders, they all have a harp. They're part of the, the worship band of heaven. And they are holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So I did this once a few years ago where I actually burned some incense here on a Sunday morning. And just while I was preaching, it was here, and it just kind of wafted up. And then a lot of people got mad because they don't like the smell of it. And so the picture of it is so beautiful, is that there, there are these angels around the throne, these elders, whatever they are, and they are the picture that they are presenting our prayers before the throne of God. 
that our prayers are coming before God's throne like beautiful incense. And whether you like it or not, um, incense, you know, it kind of wafts up. It's a good picture of our prayers ascending up to heaven. But there is an aroma to it. And personally, I don't like the aroma myself, but uh, there is a pleasing aroma to it that is just, a, it's a beautiful thing. And, and people say it can relax them and there's a peace that comes about it. But that our prayers come before God's throne like that. And so again, put aside whether you personally like incense or not. But there is something beautiful that our prayers, sinners that we are, Weak as we are, broken as we are, our weak, sinful, broken prayers, our prayers that we don't know how to pray, our times when we don't have words to say, our, our times when we just are, are struggling through prayer or stumbling through prayer and we're not sure what we're doing, those things that we offer up by faith are transformed somehow in heaven to this beautiful thing before God's throne, this beautiful thing that he is desiring from us. One of the reasons we pray is because it is part of our worship. Worship isn't just about the music. Our prayers are worship because every time we pray, we are saying, God, you are God and I am not not. You are greater than I am. Every time we pray, we are acknowledging that he is more and that we need him every time we pray. So if you are one who feels like, well, I don't always know what to pray or how to pray and my prayers are clunky or whatever, doesn't matter. Whatever we are offering up by prayer here on earth that we offer up by faith here on earth is presented before God as beautiful golden bowls of incense. He desires your prayer. Perfection is not required. Polish is not required. When Jesus was asked, how should we pray? And he teaches the Lord's Prayer. You can pray the Lord's Prayer in about 15 seconds. And in it, you can cover worship, you cover petition, you cover spiritual warfare, you cover repentance, you cover forgiveness. Like, you cover an awful lot. And Jesus made really clear, it's the pagans who stand on the street corners and babble on and on. They feel like God will be moved the more words that you use. But your father already knows what you need before you even ask him. It's not about lawyering up against God and convincing him to do something. It's about offering up something by faith in worship to the one who is the one who can change things. And so we are in the middle. Uh, we announced this last week. We're doing a 21-day fast. Uh, so we're a week into it now. So we got two weeks left. We're a third of the way through. And encourage you, if you haven't yet, jump in with us. And we just felt like it's a really good time just to be pressing into God right now and to, to take that time. I talked a bit last week about fasting. We sent out an email about why it's important. And so we're not doing a formal program to it. We've just said we're fasting and we're praying. We're fasting for COVID to leave our land. We're fasting for our government to be in step with God's will. We're fasting for our church, just God's blessing on our church. And then we're fasting for ourselves, that God will do whatever he wants to do in each of us and that we would be open and that we would be aware of that. So that is what we are praying for. And if, you, if you're not sure what to pray, don't take the pressure on of, I have to pray the way Chris prays or the way Marissa prays or the way Sarah prays or the way I hear other people pray. It's like you pray the way you want to pray. And God takes all of that, you know, clunky brokenness of our humanity. And as it comes before his throne in heaven, it is beautiful incense out of a golden bowl. It is something that he desires from us. So these elders are there with the harps. They are there holding out our prayers. Verse 9 and 10, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. 
And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so Jesus is restoring Adam and Eve. He is restoring it all back to the way it was supposed to be at the beginning. And so Jesus is worthy. He is the only one found who is worthy. Worthy just means deserving. He is the only one who is deserving to open the scroll. No other angel can do it. No one else on earth can do it. He deserves it. And we're told exactly why. He deserves it. You are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people. You are worthy. You are the only one who is allowed to open this thing because you lived a life of such radical obedience, even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Because you were willing to do that, Jesus, this is your reward. You are the one who is worthy to open. And again, it's so backwards it's like, how did you get this worthiness? Because you died on a cross, this powerless, vulnerable, uh, you know, emptying out of a life on the cross. And Paul would say, it's foolishness. The cross is foolishness to the world. By the world standard who honors strength, the world wants to see someone take charge. The world wants to see someone dominate. The world wants to see strength. And Jesus comes in a completely different way than expected. Jesus comes embracing his humanity. He comes weak. He comes following a path of sorrows. He comes dying on a cross. In the world's eyes, it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't come seeking worldly power. He doesn't come offering a political solution. He doesn't come that way at all. He comes laying down his life for the sake of others. And for those of us who follow after Jesus, who walk in his footsteps, that is the call on our lives as well. That even in the early church, they didn't come seeking power and prestige. They weren't concerned about governments and what was going on there. They came to preach the gospel, and they came to encourage the church, and they came to pray, and they came to do what God was calling them to do. And so as they do that, they too, in the early church, chose this path of humility and brokenness and suffering and persecution. They chose to say, hey, we are not here to seek, you know, to, to take over the planet as an army would. We are going to come person by person. We're going to introduce people to Jesus as we introduce people to Jesus, the kingdom of God advances. As we learn to live in the way of Christ, which is this humble, broken, other-centered, foot-washing, servant-hearted, self-sacrificing path, that somehow God uses that to bring his kingdom. It's not a power movement in the traditional way. It's a power by the Holy Spirit movement, which looks very different than the way the world looks for power. It is a path of lowering yourself. It is an upside-down kingdom. To be great in God's ideas isn't to become great in people's eyes. It's to become less. To become great in the kingdom of God is to lower yourself. It's to humble yourself. It's to take the last seat. It's to take last place. It's not to shove yourself to the front. It's not to demand things for yourself. It is to lay your life down. It is to take the lower place. It is to take the humble route. And if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, that is what we're following. That is what we're signing up for. As Jesus goes to the cross... He purchases people for God with his blood. He purchases us. Scripture says you're not your own. You were bought at a price. And what that means is if Jesus is Lord of your life, he actually needs to be Lord of your life. There can only be one Lord. 
And you can do it yourself. Again, that is the sin problem. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That there are many, many, many people on this planet who say, I am the Lord of my own life. Thank you very much. But if we're going to call Jesus Lord, then he actually needs to be Lord. He has purchased us for God. So we are not the master of our own lives anymore. We have a new master. We are not the Lord of our own lives anymore. We have a new Lord. And so that is going to change everything. That's going to change the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. That's going to change what's important to us. It's going to change how we live our lives. That if we really are his, we are his. And he has bought these people. He has made them into a kingdom. We are welcomed into his family with him as the king. He's made us priests as well. And this is something that's sort of so common for us now that we really miss something if we don't take a moment to look at what a priest was before Jesus came. And so priests were the ones who interceded to God for you. You had a go-between. You couldn't go to God yourself. And so you had to go to a priest. The priest would offer up a sacrifice for you. The priest would offer up prayers for you for your forgiveness. You couldn't do that on your own. You had to go through an intermediary. And so in the Old Testament, if you wanted to approach God, you had to go through a priest. You didn't have a choice. If you wanted to hear from God, you had to go find a prophet. You couldn't hear from him yourself. Not everybody had the Holy Spirit. And so the idea, like the level of game changer that this one is, from the Old Testament is that, okay, now, if you remember at the cross when Jesus dies, the temple curtain tears, right? And so only priests were allowed in the temple. Only one priest once a year was allowed to go behind the curtain because behind the curtain was where the presence of God was. And so once a year, the high priest could go behind the curtain. Uh, and, and there were all sorts of rituals he had to do to make sure he was holy and that he was protected as he went in. And so that was it. That was what approaching God looked like in the Old Testament, is that you had to have the priestly line do it for you. You had to have the high priest do it for you to walk into the presence of God. But when Jesus dies, that curtain tears because a whole new age is coming where God is not confined to a building and when the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on all flesh. And so now you don't need someone to intercede for you before God. Jesus has done that and does that for you. You don't need me to do that for you or any other minister. You don't need to come into a building to experience the presence of God. And of course we do that here and it's wonderful, but it's also not necessary because the Spirit has been poured out everywhere. We left behind the theology that says you must encounter God only in a building once a week. We've left that behind at the cross. And that is part of what we're all sort of struggling with, having to relearn in this time, because we depend on this a lot. We love our gatherings, and we, we are refreshed in our gatherings, and we need our gatherings. And I, I hear, you know, some of the churches that are defying and staying open right now, and the way they are preaching and the way they are talking is, no, like, you have to come in the building. You have to come in the building to receive the word. You have to come in the building to fulfill the scriptures. And just so you know where Meadowbrook at, I was talking to a pastor this week, and he said, well, what if people, you know, learn that they don't need to come to church to encounter God? And I said, they don't. They don't. And anyone saying otherwise is in significant theological error. We don't have to do church this way. We like doing church this way. But we can encounter God anywhere. We can fellowship in lots of different ways. And there are benefits in coming together, of course, in the way we do church in this culture. But there's an underground church in China. They can't do this. And they are still the church. The Book of Acts church couldn't always meet together in buildings. Sometimes they were on the run. But they encountered God in prison and in houses and out on the streets. Like the Holy Spirit is everywhere. 
And, and I love, like, I, I was so sad getting ready for church this morning, just partly just because I, I don't love when we can't be together. I miss having the family together. We love what we get to do when we gather together. But surely part of what the Lord is teaching us in this season that we are in is learning how to have the rich encounter with God everywhere because the Holy Spirit is with us everywhere. I had, as I was getting ready, I was in the shower this morning and, and shaving and getting ready, uh, worship music playing in the background man, did I have a powerful encounter with God in my shower this morning. And we can do that anywhere. Susan on our staff says, you know, she says, for me, Sunday morning is just like dessert. I, I have this rich encounter with God all week long, and then Sunday morning is just the icing on the cake. And we get to come together in worship, and it's powerful. We get to see one another. We join our voices together. Like, I, I say this. I only have worship team members and tech team members in the room this morning, but, uh, like, we really do have the best worship team in Windsor-Essex. And I'm not saying that, like, in a dad way, like, you have to say it because you're the pastor. I, objectively, we have the best worship team in Windsor-Essex. And so there are good things that can happen as we come together and we join join our gifts and we join our resources and we can have a kids program. Like we love our gatherings. And I was sad as I got ready this morning because we're not gathering together in the way we would like to gather right now. But I do think part of what we're supposed to be learning is, okay, well, where are you encountering God every day in your life? Where are you encountering God by his spirit everywhere? You are a priest. You don't need a priest. I am not a priest for you. And if I left tomorrow, you would do just fine in your walk with God. I hope you would miss me. I would miss you. But you don't need me in that way where you get to actually approach God yourself, where you actually can read and by the Spirit understand Scripture yourself. And we have gifts that we can use to bless and encourage one another. We're not all gifted at everything. There's still a fellowship that needs to happen. But at the same time, let's embrace the fact that you are your own priest, that you can encounter God anytime you want to. You can encounter God on any phone call, around your dinner table, in your living room, at the park, at your work, while you're in school. It is all there. Access has been wide open. Jesus has made you your own priest. And so you encounter God wherever you can. And, and we need to be learning how we do this more and more. And so there is this worthiness ascribed to Jesus. You are worthy to open the scroll because you died. They are acknowledging why he is the only one in heaven or on earth who's able to open the scroll. But then it shifts even further. So they've said, you're worthy because you died, and so you had to open the scroll. But then verse 11 and 12, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And that sounds a little bit like what they were just singing about God the Father in Revelation chapter four. So it's moved now. First, they're singing to Jesus about his worthiness to open the scroll. Now they are worshiping the lamb as God. So it's not just, hey, you're a good human servant who did good things, and because you did good things and you died on the cross, you are now given this heavenly reward. That is what's happening there. But this is now a step further. Now the lamb is receiving the worship that they just gave to God the Father. He is worthy of our worship. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, he is worthy all the time. He is always worthy of our worship. He is worthy all the time. His worthiness does not depend on my mood. His worthiness does not depend on the songs that I like or that I don't like. He is worthy to be worshipped always. He is always deserving of our praise. 
So there's this picture of these angels, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. We've said throughout the series, much of Revelation has Old Testament connections. There's a verse in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, uh, where Daniel has his vision of the throne. It says, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And so uh, could be literal. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Um, could, and I think probably more likely that it's just poetry. It's just a poem way of saying just endless angels, angels as far as the eye could see, just voices upon voices upon voices that the Lamb is the same God in Daniel who is receiving all of this attention from all of these angels. And so it is all there, and Jesus is getting that worship. The Lamb receives the worship. And as Jesus receives the worship, Jesus the Lamb, who is at the center of the throne, the challenge for us is, is Christ really at the center for us? Is he at the center of the throne in our lives? If you're attending Meadowbrook, you're watching online, there's a good chance Jesus is Lord of your life. You're already there. Is Jesus center of everything? Is he center in our thoughts? Is he center in our hearts? Is he center in our words? Is he center in our actions? As Jesus gets all of the worship, all of the attention of heaven, does he have that level of attention from us? Now, in fairness, they are face to face with him and seeing him in glory. So it's probably a little easier for him to be the center of attention in that sense. We have many things that can pull us apart, many things that would distract us. At the same time, heaven is consumed with attention and adoration for this lamb? And are we as a people consumed with Christ at the center? And it's not that hard to tell. It's not that hard to measure it. And as I say that, I don't know anybody who does this perfectly. But where are your thoughts generally? Is Jesus there? Where is your affection? Is Jesus there? What does your time go to? Is Jesus there? What words come out of your mouth? I said to someone this week, if all the words we've spoken about COVID in the last year or restrictions or whatever the case may be, if all of those words were replaced with us talking about Jesus instead, maybe we'd all be in a better mood and maybe more people would have come to Jesus in this time, right? Whatever comes out of your mouth, Jesus says, shows what's going on in your heart. And so we need to pay attention to where our words are at. And if our words are showing something in our heart that isn't great, or at the very least isn't Jesus, then we need to adjust that and be willing to adjust that. Is he really central? At some point in the last year, I got a phone call. It was Dan Sacasa. Dan's a member of our church. He's been a board member and he's a good friend. And my phone is ringing, which is a bit off-putting sometimes when the phone's ringing, because everyone texts or messages, right? So when the phone rings, as a pastor, honestly, my first reaction is often, what's wrong? Like, who, who died? Why is someone calling me in person? It sounds weird in this age of technology we live in. And so Dan is calling, and Dan said, hey, right away, he, he knows. He's right away, he says, nothing's wrong, everyone's fine, everything's okay. But he said, I just want to tell you about some good stuff that Jesus is doing in our lives right now. Just some cool things that are happening in my family. And he just took 20 minutes just to share, just answered prayer and, and good stuff that God was doing and his kids and just took 20 minutes. I said, Dan, like, oh, nobody, people don't often call me just to give good news like that. Like there's always, there's, there is a bad news thing that happens a lot in ministry or there's a need or there's something. And I was just so appreciative that Dan just took the time to call just to share some good news. Here's just some good things that are going on that Jesus is doing 
And you go, man, we're supposed to be people of good news, right? The gospel means good news. We are supposed to be people who are sharing the good news. And we talked last week about we are not to be grumblers. We are not to be arguers. We are not to be complainers. We shouldn't be people of bad news. I mean, we have to talk about tragedy and stuff as it happens, but we should be primarily defined by the good news that we share. And especially in the age we're living in, don't underestimate the power of just sharing some good news with somebody of just sharing something positive, of saying here's something good that God is doing in my life, that Jesus is central when our words reflect him, when our actions reflect him. There's one more song to come, verse 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven. So we've heard the living creatures and the elders talk. We are now, uh, the last song, we heard the 10,000 times 10,000 angels singing. And now I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. It's just like, like, it's just all this intensity of worship that is going on. And it ends with people on their face. To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, God the Son, be praise and honor and glory and power. The Father and Son receiving worship together, again, in the mystery of the Trinity, distinct from one another, yet somehow one God together, receiving the worship of not just the angels, the the elders, not just the 10,000 times 10,000 angels, all of creation is worshiping the Father and worshiping the Son. So the Lamb will receive that worship from all creation. Now, here's what's tricky about Revelation, is that sometimes Revelation seems like one of those movies where time is hopping around. You know those movies where it's like, it's not a straight line narrative, it's like you're in the middle of the story and then there's a flashback and then you jump ahead. Revelation seems in sometimes to read kind of like that because we, you sort of get the sense up to this point that John is in heaven right now. John is in heaven in real time. And so, I mean, 2,000 years ago, but like in, in his time, he is seeing what's going on in heaven right now. And yet we get to this point and we say, okay, well, not everybody on earth has acknowledged Jesus yet, right? We know that. We're not at that point yet. And so it's possible that just because heaven exists outside of our time, we have an earthly time. It's one of the dangers, I think, of trying to read Revelation as a literal, like, step-by-step perfect timeline, is that it seems that something that they're talking about is something that's probably going to happen more at the end, at the very end of time, not something that was happening in the moment. And it actually sounds an awful lot like Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we read that in Philippians, we typically understand that is that is something that is yet to come that not every knee has bowed to Jesus yet, but one day every knee will. And so it's possible that John in this vision of heaven is seeing something that maybe hasn't happened just yet, but that is something to come. But either way, we are, are once again just centralized on who Jesus is, that Jesus who loved us, that Jesus, the powerful one who became powerless by worldly standards, the vulnerable death on the cross that he lived, that because of that, he has been exalted to the highest 
this place. He is worthy of our worship. We are, he is worthy of our attention. He is worthy of our hearts. He is worthy of our words. He is worthy of our actions. And he is worthy of everything we have because he has done this for us. I just finished a book, a really good book called Jesus Manifesto. It's by Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. I quoted them a couple weeks ago. I got a couple more quotes today. They say Christians don't follow Christianity. They follow Christ. Christians don't preach about Christ. They simply preach Christ. Christians don't shout from rooftops, come to church. They shout from the mountains, Jesus Christ is born, come to Christ. Christians don't point people to core values. They point to the incarnated, crucified, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, exalted, triumphant, glorified, reigning Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, the King, the Messiah, Christ beyond the tomb. Sometimes you read stuff and you're like, I want to talk that way. There's just a poetry to it that's beautiful. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. That we would be a people consumed with Jesus Christ. That we would be a people for whom Christ is truly central. That same one who loved us. The same one who is the lion and the lamb. The same one who laid his life down for us. The same one who by his spirit has made his home right here inside us all the time who is with us always and promised he would be with us always, that we would be people who are just so consumed with Jesus and meeting with Jesus and walking like Jesus and talking like Jesus, that we would be holy, we would look different, we would be consumed by him. There are people in our lives, hopefully, that can inspire us to that. My wife is one, as we were talking this morning, and I I was just sharing with her, I'm just kind of sad. We're not all going to be together today. It's not my favorite, certainly. I miss you so much when we're not together, church. It just, it it pulls on my heart. And yet, my wife said, and, and we mentioned, Susan has said this as well, my wife just said, hey, I... I miss church too. I miss when we can all gather together. There is something about it that is so powerful and so encouraging, but... Uh, my wife said, you know, I'm, I'm digging into the word every day and I am praying every day and, uh, and I am engaging with him every day and I'm in his presence every day and I am seeking after him every day and, and church is a wonderful help along the way but I am connected to him in that way that we would be people who don't just seek Jesus on a Sunday morning. We would be people consumed by him always, seeking him always. And he has promised in his word that if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us, but we have to do some drawing near, right? You have to make time for it. You have to sacrifice for it. My wife and Susan don't get to that place just flippantly. They, they make it a priority. Jesus is central in the time that they have. They carve it out. They make it important. They make him important. They make his worthiness important. So as we talk about a year of thriving, how do we thrive in 2021? How do we thrive, whether we're in church or whether we're not in church, whether we're in a good place and a bad place, far beyond just our season we're in right now as we go through life? There's going to be trials, difficulties. How do we thrive no matter what? So first and most obviously, we thrive when Christ is the center, when he is really the center, when he is the center of our hearts, not just someone we engage with on Sundays, when he is the center of our heart, when he is in our thoughts, when he is in our decision-making, when he is in the words that come out of our mouth, when he is in our actions, the steps that we take, when he is in our obedience, when he is in every decision that we are making, when Christ is the center. And if he's not, then we ask ourselves now and we ponder this for this week, what needs to change then? What needs to change then? 
Because if, if honestly, I think for almost all of us, either COVID or restrictions or something about this season has probably become more central than Jesus for a lot of us. It has taken over. It is trying to wrestle its way into the throne of our lives. And we say, no, I follow Jesus. There is one king in my life, and it's Jesus. There is one Lord and one master. It is Jesus. There is only one who is worthy to be center on the throne of my life, and that is Jesus Christ. And so what needs to change in terms of what I'm doing, what I'm saying, what I'm filling my mind with, what I'm reading, the websites I'm listening to, what am I doing with my time? Where do we need to adjust to make Jesus center as he deserves to be? And then what do I do out of that? How do I live my life with Jesus as center? We can't gather together right now. That's not something we're able to do. What can we do? We don't want to just give up and say, well, I guess that's that. No, like, what can you do? With what you have, what can you do? We've, we've killed ourselves in the second lockdown, coming into the third of how can we be church in this way right now? We had to get very creative. And I was honest, I was so proud of our leadership team for figuring out ways to be the church, even if we couldn't have a Sunday morning gathering the way we would like. So we can't do everything we want right now. We can whine about that, or we can say, all right, what can I do? with what I have. Don't underestimate in this season the power of a phone call or a text. I was praying for you today. How are you doing? Don't underestimate the power of connecting with someone who doesn't know the Lord and saying, how can I pray for you right now? And offering that encouragement. Don't underestimate the power of a plate of cookies on someone's doorstep and a doorway visit. Don't, don't underestimate these things. These are good for the soul. They are good ways that we can be light, that we can be salt, that we can spread hope, that we can show the world that we are different because we are the ones who have Christ at the center. We're gonna worship before we go today. One more quote from Sweet and Viola before we go. Christ is your shepherd, your advocate, your mediator, your bridegroom, your conqueror, your lion, your lamb, your sacrifice, your manna, your smitten rock, your living water, your food, your drink, your good and abundant land, your dwelling place, your Sabbath rest, your new moon, your jubilee, your new wine, your feast, your aroma, your anchor, your wisdom, your peace, your comfort, your healer, your joy, your glory, your power, your strength your wealth, your victory, your redemption, your prophet, your priest, your kinsman redeemer, your teacher, your guide, your liberator, your deliverer, your prince, your captain, your vision, your sight, your beloved, your way, your truth, your life, your author, your finisher, your beginning, your end, your age, your eternity, your all in all. This is the one we serve. This is the one we worship. This is the one who has made his home right here all the time. This is the one who has promised he would never, ever leave us. This is the one that we worship, who is worthy of our worship. This is the one who is worthy to be center of our lives, that we would be a people consumed with Jesus Christ, no matter what we are facing, that the words out of our mouths would be Jesus, that the thoughts in our mind would be Jesus, us, that what's going on in our heart would be Jesus. We would be a Jesus people. We would be holy in this way. And so this is the one who is worthy, and we are going to worship him together before we go. I know at home it can be a little awkward. Some people have said, I don't like singing with just me and my family. I like it when the drums can drown me out. And listen, He's worthy of our worship, and he's worthy of maybe feeling a little awkward. So crank up the sound as loud as you want it, and we are going to worship him together before we close in prayer.